The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Tom Clark. Europe needs a big bazooka, so says David Cameron. A grand and cunning plan backed by billions of euros. A plan so good that it would at once reassure the markets and set the European Union back onto the path to prosperity. Well, it hasn't quite got that yet, but it does have the tongue-twisting European Financial Stability Facility, the EFSF for short. This is the weapon the EU has chosen, and for part of this week, the continent's economists trained their eyes improbably on a nine-hour debate in the Slovakian parliament. Bratislava is the last Eurozone capital to ratify the beefed-up bailout fund, and Slovak MPs hadn't been reading the script. They voted it down, causing headaches across Brussels and underlining again, if it needed underlining, just how fraught and how sclerotic Europe is in responding to these crises. But as we record, however, a second vote looks certain to go through in favour of the motion, and so by the end of the week, we'll have a newly enlarged Eurozone bailout fund. The next big question, however, is whether it is big enough. I ask Ansgar Belki, who's Professor of Economics at a German university. It's, it's still not, not large enough, uh, because what, what they agreed upon is something... Uh guaranteeing loans of 440 billions of euros. And this is certainly not enough to cover uh, completely the Italian-Spanish case. It is designed for uh, dealing with the Portuguese, Greece and Irish case. And Ireland is a, is a positive exemption, as I see it, and will be able to, to uh, go away from the program maybe in 2013 already. But if you look at Italy, it's eight times as large as Greece, and uh, on the whole, uh, the, the Greek program was, was more uh, than 250 billions of euros. But this is exactly why the EU summit on uh, July the 21st agreed upon some precautionary facilities with the current EFSF. And, but, but still, uh, this is not sufficient. Some countries may address the, the IMF for some, some precautionary uh, loans. But in the end, it uh, falls back on the EFSF, uh, which has to be leveraged. And this has been uh, discussed more recently. For instance, uh, giving a bank license to the uh, EFSF uh, to, to get money from the ECB uh, in order to, to give li- huge liquidity injections to Italy. And Gar Belki there. Well, he raised the idea of leveraging the EFSF, that is, allowing it to pass on some of its debt to financiers, probably from India and China. Although some of you with longer memories might remember we heard a little too much about leveraging after the banking crisis of 2008. Now, one man who's thought very carefully about how it might be applied perhaps more sensibly in this situation is Sonny Kapoor, who's the managing director of the think tank Redefine. He joins me now on the line from Brussels. Um, so, Sonny, um, have you got a clear idea on how this idea of leveraging might work? Um, yes. So, Given that the European Central Bank is refusing to step up its support of Italy and Spain, we're caught in a quandary where there is no other outside form of support available apart from the EFSF. 
in which case we need to think of creative ways of making this 440 billion go further. So there are two extreme solutions possible. At one end is imagining that this 440 billion is not a guarantee, it's not a loan, but thinking of this as an equity pool. So think of it as shares in a bank and converting the EFSF into a bank, which is then able to borrow as banks are from the markets and is then able to lend the money on to Italy and Spain at reasonable rates. It can I, could can also, I, sorry, go ahead. We'll come on to a second possible solution in, in a minute. But this first idea is essentially turning the EFSF into a bank. And of course, one thing banks can do is create money. Does this raise the question of whether it might be a lot better if the European Central Bank would just create the money necessary? Yes, I was coming to that. So the borrowing rate for the EFSF is already close to 3 3.5%. And if it was borrowing a substantial amount that greater than its equity, it would need to pay a higher interest rate. Right. So there are limits in far how far you can stretch this model as long as the money for buying the bonds comes from markets. But banks have access to central bank liquidity. So in theory, the EFSF as a bank could buy an Italian bond and then deposit it with the European Central Bank in exchange for being able to repo the transaction and get money back on its balance sheet, which it can then use to buy further bonds. So the funding cost for the EFSF, if it were to actually get the money from the European Central Bank, would be much lower, and the money could be made to go much further, except the European Central Bank has said that it would have no such thing. It has refused, point blank, to allow the EFSF to access its facilities. And so, that's why this is not going to work. So, OK, so there's this one option, which is, OK, so you've got an ideal case scenario, which is that the European Central Bank just says it's going to provide the necessary liquidity. You've got a second scenario, which to the listener will sound quite complicated, of turning this other thing, the EFSF, into a bank and then asking, the uh, which will act in a non commercial way in a, in, a, in a very specific way and then asking the European Central Bank to prop it up like it would any other bank and and, and so that that's all very complicated and in a way unsurprisingly the European Central Bank having refused to supply the liquidity in the first place has said it's not going to do it in this in this kind of round the back way so that probably takes us on to your second scenario then could you say a bit about that yes the other extreme option is Instead of thinking of the EFSF as a bank, uh-huh. we think of it as a provider of guarantees. Right. This has a precedent. In the United States, there were firms called monoline insurers, and the only thing they did was they took the bonds from municipalities, small municipalities, and in exchange for an insurance premium, said that they were going to provide insurance against credit risk on these bonds. So people not paying their debts back, in other words. Exactly. So while these municipalities, if they had borrowed directly in the markets, would have had to pay interest rates of, say, 5%, once they had this insurance from these monoline insurers, they got away with paying just 3% with a small premium on top. So everybody benefited. And is this second scenario you're describing there, is that getting towards what's been described as leveraging the EFSF? Exactly. Now... If this 440 billion 
is considered to be a pool of guarantees. What you can essentially do is when Italy issues bonds, right now it is having to pay almost 6% to borrow, which is too high mm. and not sustainable. But if Italy were to issue a new class of bonds tomorrow, after having purchased a guarantee from the EFSF, which is rated AAA, the highest credit rating, it could presumably issue these bonds at much lower interest rates, say 4%. Now, what is also important is that the guarantee need not be full. You could provide a partial guarantee, say, against the first 20 or 30% of losses that might arise if Italy refuses or cannot pay its bonds back. And this means that this $440 billion could essentially guarantee Italy and Spain borrowing significantly larger amounts through of these partially guaranteed bonds in the market. So what we're, the essential underlying assumption there is that Italy's never going to refuse point blank to pay all of its debt, but it might sell, here we'll have a 20% haircut or whatever, and, and, and that's where this insurance would kick in, is that right? That's correct. That's one way of looking at it. But I think a more appropriate way of looking at this today is that by the EFSF, which is run by the 17 euro area member countries, agreeing to put itself, in a manner of speaking, between bondholders mm -hmm. and any future losses on Italy, it is showing that the 17 euro area member countries have full faith in the solvency of Italy and Spain, have full faith that Italy and Spain will never default. It is as much, if not more, a political statement as an actual financial guarantee. Is it, um, we were talking before about how your option A, if you like, was changing European Central Bank's policy by the back door. Would this stand accused of creating euro bonds by the back door, by which we mean bonds that are underwritten by all the Eurozone members uh, that are issued by any individual member? We do already have euro bonds. The European Investment Banks, uh, that issues bonds that are written by, underwritten by all 27 member states. The EFSF already actually issues bonds in order to raise money to then lend to Ireland and Portugal and Greece. And these are also euro bonds, albeit of different kind. So we have euro bonds, but euro bonds can mean 20 different things to 20 different people. But this is a form of a joint operation between euro area member states. But if you're worried just for a minute now about the politics of this, the problem, we know the German public is very worried about, um, you know, uh, both uh, the return of inflation one day or the, um, the sense that they're having to bail out other countries. Um, isn't the difference, OK, there's already collective support through the European Investment Bank, as you say, in the ESFF. But the, the difference here is that the, um, because of this leveraging mechanism, um, it's no longer the amount that was signed off on the bottom line by Chancellor Merkel. It's some different amount, depending on um, how, um, how far you dare go with this leveraging. And so the, the political control of the individual sovereign states is diluted, isn't it, under the scheme? Uh, that's not strictly correct. So let's look at it this way. You are standing next to John. Mm -hmm. Now you uh, and, and I'm Sony here. And you ask me for 100 euros, which I lent to you. So this is the EFSF lending money to you, 100 euros. This is already allowed. Right. Now, what I'm speaking about in terms of the guarantee scenario is that 
instead of coming to me, you go to John yeah. and you borrow 100 euros. Yeah. But John doesn't quite believe you. Right. So I tell John that I am going to guarantee, uh, guarantee him, insure him against the first 20 euros of any losses he might have okay. if you run away. All right, well, that might sound reasonable when you describe it in those terms. But the thing it reminds me of, I have to say, is John Lanchester's very good account of how we got to the um, the banking bust in the first place, where we had, and few of us, um, uh, few of us generalists will kind of know the, the detail of how it worked, but where you had um, debts that were heavily leveraged and then bundled up into collateral debt obligations or whatever they were called and parceled out to other people and then other people reinsured through these um, default swaps, credit default swaps. And do, do you think just, um, well, two questions really. First of all, do you think that the public will be very suspicious of this kind of thing because it will bring back memory of those kind of what now look like sharp practices before 2008? And secondly, even if you can persuade the public, should we actually be worried about um, whether we might get into some of those kind of muddles at the European level that affected Wall Street and the City of London back three years ago? Well, taking a step back, I think we are in a situation where many of the same financial shenanigans Mm -hmm. that got us into trouble in the first place in those shenanigans happening in the private sector have actually already been replicated in various public balance sheets. The EFSF, for example, is a special purpose vehicle. And when we are talking Mm. leverage, we are effectively talking some kind of a credit CDO, which became notorious in the United States with subprime. I, I will completely agree with that. That having been said, we are not looking here at an ideal choice. We are looking at a desperate situation where almost all sensible exits are blocked, either politically or economically. And we're trying to chalk a path which might just show us a way out of this minefield. So we have very little room for manoeuvre. And is the, is, the, is the limited room for manoeuvre really about... The, the politics, you know, the, the European Central Bank is doing what it's doing and the member states have got their own problems. Is it those sort of problems rather than the actual raw economics? Uh, yes, blocking so, you? so prior to July, when the crisis became systemic, before, the, uh, before Spain and Italy got sucked in, it was still a relatively small problem and there were several economically sensible things one could do to get us out. And the political space was was broad enough to allow those sensible things to be done, but they weren't done. But now that Spain and Italy have got caught up, we simply, for example, do not have enough bank capital to ensure that the European banking system will uh, be safe in the event of an Italian or a Spanish insolvency. So we have to start with the assumption that Spain and Italy cannot be allowed to go insolvent, and I don't think they are. Mm -hmm. All they are facing is a liquidity problem, but if it continues much longer, they will become insolvent because you're only solvent as long as you're able to borrow at a reasonable rate. If your credit card rate goes to 50% today, you are going to go insolvent. But if you can continue to borrow at 5%, you'll be able to repay some of the old money, and so on and so forth. So in that sense, this mechanism is a backstop as long as the European Central Bank keeps saying no to providing greater support to Italy and Spain. 
we have to, instead of saying, okay, well, there's nothing else we can do, we have to look for other choices. And this is one of those possibilities that may work. Okay, so needs must. I think I I understand that you've expressed that very clearly. But would the um, European Central Bank, do you see any prospects of it changing tack and just allowing a more neat and straightforward solution? In July, the European Central Bank, when all the leaders were on holiday and when Italy, Italian spreads started to spike, the European Central Bank stepped in and started buying Italian bonds. Over the next one month, every single thing that the Germans and the European Central Bank are scared of in terms of moral hazard, the idea that if you help out countries in trouble, they will suddenly, if you ease the pressure on them, mm-hmm. they will become lax. Yep. And Mr. Berlusconi, first having committed to a strong fiscal adjustment program, when the pressure on the Italian bonds eased because of ECB help, he started backtracking. Over the next one month, what you saw was political theater, classic political theater being played out in Europe, uh, a game of chicken between the ECB and Mr. Berlusconi. And that incident has made the ECB very, very reluctant to step in in a I big see. way again. So so we probably are left relying on these rather ingenious um, kind of... Uh, improvised escape routes that you've been talking about the big question now is judgment and it's time to ask the experts to put their money where their mouth is first of all back to professor ansgar belke who i asked whether or not the eurozone is going to muddle through this you are not allowed to to talk publicly about these issues uh, at least as a politician so uh, as a scientist you may speculate about it and uh, also some Commercial banks like UBS or HSBC were speculating about the end of the euro and the breakup. But what they all say is that this would be connected with such a huge amount of costs uh, that there are still some months or even years to go until we will uh, be in a doomsday scenario. Because what you have to see is all the conversion, currency conversion of, of debt, which might be detrimental for weak countries uh, intending to leave the euro area uh, and also for strong countries like Germany we reckon with such a huge degree of appreciation of our currency that this uh, would not make sense and not to speak of rumors in the population and uh, public disorder and thing, things like that and you may also not forget that you have to to exit EU as well if you exit the euro um, you also have to exit the EU, and then uh, if you want to be back again in, in EU, you have to ask all all the guys uh, uh, again uh, whether you are allowed to, to enter again, and this would uh, pose a huge of a problem. And uh, if you are not a member of the EU anymore, there would be huge trade barriers for you as well and some other problems like that, so that I think uh, all the installation costs are sunk from a business point of view now and we still have to have some tolerance to stay in but i see a 30 percent probability that there will be euro break up within three or four years maybe so that's ansgar belke there with a slightly disturbing um verdict um but finally let's give the last word to sonny kapoor could i just ask you um are you an optimist in the end do you think that they'll Clearly, there's some things you could do. You've set them out very eloquently. Will they be enough? Do you think we'll um, 
get through the Eurozone without, for example, any member state leaving? Well, I think the prospect of member states leaving is hugely exaggerated. But that does not mean that we are not going to see the situation get significantly worse. The ECB will refuse to blink as long as things don't become much, much worse. And so our hope is that at this time when you need a sequence of, let's say, 10 steps to go right in order for the situation to improve, our hope is that nothing blows up. There was this great cheer in the market when the German parliament approved changes to the EFSF, but it wasn't a positive cheer. That was important only because it has nuisance value. So there are many steps now that have nuisance value, which are significant only if they don't go uh, in the direction that everybody is expecting. But in terms of what positive things could be done, I think apart from leveraging the EFSF and providing this political signal of saying that Italy and Spain are solvent, Greece has an insolvency problem, but we have tackled it once and for all, and then hoping that the ECB will step in in case this is not enough is the only possible way forward. It's not an optimistic assessment. I have been an incurable optimist, which is why I work on these issues, despite frustration. Uh, but I think we have some very hard times ahead of us, no matter what happens now. Sonny Kapoor then, leaving us with um, a dismal, although less catastrophic than some, interpretation of the way that the Eurozone's heading. Um, that's it for the business this week. As always, you can leave your thoughts on the programme on our blog. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Tom Clark, and thanks very much for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.